Today's guest is Mark Huchar of Chateau Moussar. Welcome. Hello. Hello, Melanie. Did I'm I very happy to be correctly? <laughs> yes, yes. Huchar is okay, correct. Good, yeah. good. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Very good. I get a, a lot of different name versions, but Hocha, Hola, everything. But Hoshar is the, the right Okay. Way. Fair enough. Okay, good. And you're calling me from? So I'm now actually in the UK, in okay. London. Very good. And uh, and so you you travel all over the world, really. I met you in Boston earlier last or later last year. Very briefly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I usually make it to the U.S. Uh, twice a year for good. for two weeks and, at a time. And you have an excellent import. You have our good friend Bartholomew Broadbent, who's on one of our first episodes. And I saw that the whole Broadbent team was very fortunate enough to go and visit you last year. So or just recently, right? Yeah, rec yeah, yeah, recently, very recently, like uh, a couple of months ago. You're very lucky. Months. You're in good hands here in the U.S. So, uh, yes, yes, we are. I've I've known Bolu actually for a very long time, um, and uh, actually, my our fathers also uh, met in '79. Actually, the first time um, any wine writer or wine critic really spoke about uh, Chateau Musard was actually Michael Broadbent, so Bolu's father. Matthew's father, um, yeah. When he tasted our wines uh, that my father was presenting at the presenting at the Bristol Wine Fair right. in 1979. And that was actually um, uh, an amazing experience that actually led to uh, uh, Michael talking about the wines, uh, mentioning uh, them, and um, I think in his year end as the discovery of the of the Bristol Wine Fair. Um, and so that was really, a, you know, the beginning of, I guess, our our families uh, getting to know each other better and then working together. And we've been with Bolu and his team, uh, I think, more than 20, almost 25 years now in the sure. U.S. Well, I, I first came across your wines in Dublin. So I don't know who's distributing Dublin. the wines in Ireland, but I, I first came across your wines in Dublin. And then when I came back, I've always been very fond of them um, because they, they, they're all the grapes that I love. <laughs> so they're selling their own grapes and those are the wines i like um yeah and, yeah who's your distributor in ireland uh, oh it's a good question yeah um, i think it's nicholson okay uh, but i'm um, not 100 percent sure but, sure, but sure. you this. are there yeah 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 definitely sure, we're, yeah. we're everywhere basically every Almost every country, literally almost every country in Europe, apart maybe sure. from some countries, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, most of Asia, US, I think in Africa and Latin America, we're a bit weaker, but that's it. All the rest were there. And so let's talk a little bit about Chateau Moussard for those who don't know. I mean, I know, but not everybody knows. You are you represent one of the largest wine companies, the largest wine company in Lebanon. You've been producing wine since... 1930 we're not the largest actually we're the yeah. third largest in terms of volumes oh, oh okay uh, there are two others that produce actually much more uh, much more quantities um oh, lebanon okay. produces eight million bottles which is not a lot actually and sure. and uh, we we're producing roughly 600,000 so sure. we're, we're so the third in terms of size. those other two companies are they producing wine that's that's consumed in lebanon or is exported um both in lebanon and abroad Okay. And what, uh, generally, what I guess I, I think around fifty percent of the production of Lebanon is is exported um, oh, okay. to the and, world. And what are the other companies? I'm just curious. 
Oh, there's uh, many. They're, they're now around 60 wineries. Oh, okay. In, okay. In yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so it's a I'm big, sorry. big number. Yeah. So let's go back. So tell me about Lebanese wine. Tell me, because you, this is when I, I saw when you were here in Boston and you, you told the story so well. So I want to hear it here. Ah, well, Lebanese wine. It's it started a while ago, and people don't think of how long um, we've actually had wines in the Middle East. But I think the the best example is really to talk of maybe or to introduce uh, you know uh, a certain person who two thousand years ago made um, was at a party and decided that there wasn't enough. Uh, um, uh, alcohol to enjoy or, or for people to enjoy themselves and decided to switch uh, water into wine uh -huh, you know right. and whenever you talk uh, about uh, Jesus uh, you know people imagine straight away the Romans and you know uh, Jesus having a table being at a table with the disciples and uh, and having wine um, and obviously that's our part of the world that's the Middle East and actually his first uh, miracle was in Cana which is a village in southern Lebanon um and so that already dated back obviously to 2000 years ago but it's uh, it predates that um in a sense that the the phoenicians who were our ancestors the ancestors of the current uh, lebanese uh, living um in what is now mount lebanon and the cities that are on the coastline um produced wines yeah roughly 6000 years ago um and they did one thing which was great, which is that they did not uh, drink it all. Uh, they shared it. So uh, they were great at trade. Uh, so they developed uh, winemaking uh, techniques um, and also not just making, but also uh, preserving because preservation is the biggest issue with, with wine. Okay. Um, and so once they've discovered and figured out how to do that, then they started obviously enjoying it locally, but then also uh, selling it. And so they sold wines to the pharaohs then eventually to what would become greece to to carthage in tunisia and so eventually this is how wine went uh, gradually uh, uh, westwards uh, through the mediterranean um, and i think now there's a there's a study that's that's been done um and that is uh Basically, not looking at the oldest wine production or oldest vats. I think the oldest vats as of today are are in Georgia and date back to 8,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but there were also two regions where um, uh, basically domesticated vines were discovered. Mm -hmm. Domesticated as in obviously planted with people settling down and rather than being nomads. And as soon as you settle down, it means that eventually you're growing something to reap the benefits of the agriculture. And those two regions were uh, the Middle East 11,000 years ago and Georgia as well. Oh, uh, it's just that as far as you know, today, the oldest vats that have been discovered date back to 8,000 years. And so that confirms at least winemaking. But if there was domestic, if there were domesticated vines 11,000 years ago, I'm sure somebody figured out that you could actually press it and make more wine out of it. It, 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 didn't, yeah. take, uh, it didn't take 3,000 years, I think, to get there think... probably. And so, yeah, we just um, don't have so, the to prove it. so talk about the revolution of um, of Lebanese wine in the twentieth century. We move forward a little. Uh, yeah, so so basically, what happened with um, uh, so once Islam came to the region, eventually, gradually, wine um, uh, stopped being produced and and consumed. It, it depended really on the regions, mm -hmm. but eventually, I, I believe that it disappeared from Lebanon. Then around eighteen fifties. Um, 
some monks started reintroducing wine uh, locally. Mm -hmm. I think mostly for their own consumption. Oh yeah, um, they preserved it everywhere. And, and yeah, the, yes, too. I think they they uh, yeah. Usually the monks are the ones that uh, you know produce. Uh, uh, spirits and wines and beers and schnapps yeah. and everything that basically is is linked to alcohol right um maybe because they yeah they needed to communicate with the you know above in, a, it, in yeah. a better way yeah. um so they reintroduced wines in lebanon i think initially coming from uh, grapes that were in algeria Algeria also had some uh, vines that were planted from, initially from France. And so they, they made the, the step France, Algeria, and then said, okay, why do we, don't we introduce them again? These were uh, introduced back in uh, 1857, I believe, mm -hmm. in, um, in Lebanon. And then, so these were, you know, very, very small production at the time. And then eventually when Lebanon was created at the end of World War One, uh, as the uh, Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, disintegrated, and all the countries, you know, of the Middle East as we know them today, were created mm -hmm. by the French and the British. Uh, Lebanon was created with its current borders, and the French were based there. Uh, and so, my father, <laughs> sorry, my grandfather, Gaston, uh, uh, you know, we're Lebanese. We have a, it's true, we have a French name, but we're Lebanese. Uh, our name, I think, dates back to the Crusades, uh, as far as we know. So many, many thousands, uh, no, hundreds of years ago. Um, and so there's always been a French culture, uh, also prevalent in Lebanon. We speak French, French at home. Right. We, we speak French, yeah. Arabic, and, and obviously English, but at home, you know, there, there was French. And so when my grandfather actually went to study medicine in France, mm -hmm. uh, didn't really like it, but came back after a year really loving wine. And he decided, yeah, that's that was his uh, his thing. Uh, and so he started it really from scratch um, with not much, just asked farmers to plant. Um, uh, he used uh, mostly varietals from Rhone because they resist better to heat, which is uh, one of the issues we have in Lebanon. We have elevation, but we also have heat. Um, but he also mixed uh, a bit of... Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon as well in there, which uh, I think was based on uh, on a friendship that he had with um, Ronald Barton from Chateau Léoville Barton, um, who was actually based in Lebanon, I think, during the two world wars. And I think they they struck up a relationship, like a friendship. And then uh, eventually, maybe that's why Cabernet Sauvignon made its way through into our, 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 our vineyards. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not 100% sure because my, my grandfather died actually fairly young at 62. And um, I don't know exactly when we started really planting Cabernet Sauvignon, but as far as I know, you know, it was before my father took over. So we're talking right. at the time of my grandfather, probably 40s, uh, mid-30s. And mid -30s. then his father took over for him? And then my father took over the, the winemaking and managing the business uh, in 1959, 1960, um, and really took over the wine program. As in, um, he really decided what he wanted to do. I think he changed quite a few things. Uh, in particular, the whole approach that we have of what we call our winemaking philosophy at Musar. Mm -hmm. That's the brainchild of my father or the taste of my father, mm -hmm. in a sense that he uh, he uh, switched a little bit the way uh, wines were done compared to my grandfather's time. I think um, what I I once had a couple of years ago, we opened 51 and 52 of um, 
uh, Mizar, mm -hmm. and uh, I was very surprised that there was no sediment. Uh, and you know, if you've ever opened a very old bottle of Mizar and mm -hmm. on the reds, you will always have sediment. Right. And so that for me showed that um, you know things were done probably in a different way at the time of my grandfather. Meaning that I think yeasts were used for, for fermentation, um, fining, filtering. Um, which is probably why the 51 and the 52 had no sediments. Um, and when my grand my father took over, his approach was, okay, the Phoenicians used to make wines with basically nothing added, uh, at least nothing that was chemical, no, no yeast. I mean, it was just a natural process uh, at the time. And so why don't we do it in the same way? And so when he took over, he really went uh, to, in a, you know, towards what today is very fashionable to call, you know, to make wines in a natural way with the minimal intervention or no intervention. You know, but for us, this is the way we've been doing it since the 60s, yeah. um, not as part of a fashion, but just because this is, you know, what we believe in, in terms of nature doing things a little bit better than man. Um so we don't really make the wines. We, I say, we tend to them. Mm -hmm. We uh, obviously we choose the varietals. We choose the terroir. We choose the picking uh, times. Um, we choose the container, mm -hmm. uh, cement in our in the case of reds and woods, and we choose the timing of different steps. But we don't make the wines. They just make themselves. Of course, of course. And so just getting back to the the, the historical aspect of Lebanon. Are there wines that are indigenous? Like we were talking with people from Napa about wines that are like, there's a wine called, um, there's actually a grape that was grown before the European settlers came with Zinfandel and all these other grapes. Um, it's called Mission. So were there particular Mission. grapes in Lebanon that were indigenous? Does that make sense? So uh, we had Philoxfera in the early 1900s in Lebanon. Right. So um, <clears throat> there might have been some indigenous grapes. Right. I think um, on the reds today, uh, some producers are saying that they have one or two varietals that they consider uh, 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 indigenous, but we haven't uh, found them and we haven't been using them and we're not sure that they are 100% okay. uh, uh, indigenous because we haven't done the DNA testing on them so we're, we're I, I don't know uh, however on the whites um, so uh, if you look at the, the the you know the geography of Lebanon um, the Beka Valley is where most of the grapes were planted uh, at least um, uh, the agriculture at least in the 1900s uh, and 1800s and so that part was affected by phylloxera but uh, there were also the local white varietals, Obeide and Merois, that we've been using you know, for whites actually since my grandfather started, so more than 90 years ago. And these, he discovered them uh, and discovered that they were actually on the sides of the mountains, higher than the Bekao, in more remote villages, um, both on the Mount Lebanon and Mount Anti-Lebanon, which are the two mountain ranges that are on the, both sides of the Bekao Valley. And um, they seem to have survived. So when he decided to make wines, he he said, "Okay, red, I need to plant because I he couldn't find anything that was suitable." Right. Uh, but on the whites, he found some grapes that he thought could could make um, great wines. And so uh, we've been using Obeid and Merouah. You know, we've been mainly mainly Merouah only until mm -hmm. basically the 80s, and then in the 80s we started introducing Obeide 
in our Chateau Mizar White in the blend. Uh, we used Obaide in the. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the varietals. Um, uh, Obaide used to be, I mean, was in our entry level uh, white wine, but it tended to make a wine that was a little bit austere. So eventually we changed that in the early 2000s. Um, but we put it into the blend with Marois, uh, so Obaide and Marois together from the 80s. And, and these makes wines. These these make a wine that is, you know, yeah, extraordinary in a sense that it it ages beautifully. It has low alcohol level despite being harvested very late. It's a very unique uh, wine. Um, yeah. And with the, yeah, released after six years now, uh, but ages 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's yeah. the thing That's about astounding. Age very well. And so, talk about your favorite vintages. <laughs> Is there one or a few? Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say there's a favorite vintage. No. I think uh, what's important for, for me is at which stage of the evolution of the wines do, do you drink them? Mm -hmm. um, it depends, again, also whether we're talking whites or red. But if we're talking reds, which is the majority of what we produce, um, our wines go through three phases. Um, when the wines are released at year six, it used to be year seven, but now it's year six because we released two vintages in the same year because of a low production uh, in 2015, actually, vintage. Um, so now it's released after six years. And during the phase, I'd say from six years of age until probably 10, 12 years, um, the wines are really more fruit forward. Uh, they are complex, and if you taste them on their own without comparing to an older vintage, you'll find a lot of complexity, maybe some animal features. Um, but, you know, it still remains on fresh fruit. Then they go through what I call the second phase, which is maybe the adolescence phase, where they move away from fresh fruit and move more into what I call stewed fruit or like a cooked fruit almost, like almost like a jam and where you concentrate sugars. Um, and that's a phase that sometimes the, the, where they do well, sometimes they don't do well and they don't show very well, to be honest. It's, uh, that's why I call it the adolescence phase. Uh -huh. um, and then eventually they move out of that phase and depending on the vintage and, um, you know, uh, it could be anywhere between 15 years or 18 or even 20 years, then they start to move away from just the fresh fruit and the cooked fruit uh, to more towards uh, what I call the animal side or the, the earthy side. And then, so then you start to get every type of aroma that can kick in. Um, and that for me is the most interesting part. Um, and so that's from 20 years onwards. It, it I And it continues to grow and the complexity builds up. If you wait 30, 40 years, obviously you lose even more of the fruit. You get more complexity and more of these earthy tones, but a bit less fruit. So it depends when you when you like them and when you like to drink them. So I, I tend to like them between, let's say, 20 and 40 years. Beyond that, they're, they're great and you can really get surprising bottles that will uh, you know wow you really. Um, but as a more mainstream day-to-day, -day, it's between the 20 and 40 year bracket. And then you know which vintage is better is very personal. Right. You know. Well, you so you have a traditional blend, a red blend that you're quite famous for, and that is. So it's a blend of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Carignan, and Sanso. Sanso. But there's another one that was a different blend that I tasted when I was at the tasting. So we have actually four different red wines. Um, 
they so we always include cabernet because we need cabernet for the structure that's really the backbone of the wine mm -hmm. uh, but cabernet tends well tends to be a wine that needs a bit more time to move away from fruit uh, it stays on fruit so long and and you know we we like fruit but we want more than just fruit sure. and uh, cabernet tends to be a little bit also more probably more harsh, bigger tannin, bigger, bolder structure, and tends to maybe overwhelm um, things. Uh, okay. In okay. particular, if you're eating uh, something with your wine, it tends maybe to uh, to overshadow the food. And so we, we're looking always for another varietal that's going to offset a little bit of that uh, masculine side of the Cabernet, which is mm -hmm. saint Sanso okay. is much more feminine, much more elegant, lighter body, lighter color. Uh, and moves away also from just fresh fruit to very, you know, faster. Mm -hmm. And then we add a third varietal um, to, to you know, I guess blend, not blend, to to connect these two uh, extremes of the Cabernet and the Sanso. Um, and that third varietal depends on the wines. And we, today we have four wines. Our Chateau label, which is our top label, and the third varietal is the Carignan. So it would be Cabernet, Sanso and Carignan. The Hochard Perifis, which is our single vineyard made just from one specific village called the Anna village. Um, we have Cabernet, Sanson, and Grenache. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have two younger wines that have no wood uh, component to them so that they stay and remain on the fruit and more fresh, uh, you know, and fruit forward. Um, there's the Levantine, which is a new addition to the portfolio, which is Cabernet, Sanson, and uh, Tempranillo, which we planted... 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, um, because it resists better to heat and we needed varietals that would resist to uh, to global warming. Okay. And then we have the Misère Jeune, which is our fourth wine, um, which is Cabernet Sanso and Syrah. So oh, okay. depending on what you're looking for in terms of the third varietal, it gives an identity specific to to, to each of these four wines. And there's the Perifils uh, as well. So I, I purchased them. The yes. The Rochard Perifis, that's the second one I mentioned. That's the one okay. with the Grenache component, the, Grenache. the single vineyard. Yeah, uh, single vineyard. Delicious yeah. wine. And so what would you pair with your wine? What would you pair with your wine? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I mentioned the phases of how they evolve and where they start, where they get to. Right. Um, obviously, the, the more you get to the 20-year age uh, bracket and plus, um, the more animal components you get. So there, uh, anything with game, <clears throat> I think, would be, is fantastic. Anything that has maybe mushrooms, right. uh, I think these are the right pairings that that work with these types of wines. Beef bourguignon, um, uh, beef for example. Yeah, anything that is uh, maybe slow cooked, as you say, and also very you know gamey. Anything gamey, um, or lamb. Lamb is for me the most obvious. Uh, uh, pairing that works but lamb also it depends actually uh, um, on the sauce um, sure. if you're just taking grilled lamb um, uh, usually I would say you can match it with red but you can also match it with white especially all the whites because they tend to uh, have a, a, take on a bit more structure with time and so the whites actually go very well with, with lamb as well but otherwise, for the reds, it's yeah, it's mostly game. In the younger vintages of reds, then okay, you have a bit more fruit. Then in that case, you know, tomatoes, anything that is red in in your plate, red colored uh, fruit actually would work, um, or even steak. Okay. Obviously. Okay. I think they're very. <coughs> wine. I adore your wines. I always have. 
And so you you now you're the export manager. Are you the export manager or is there someone else who has that job? I mean, that's you were the face of the company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am uh, uh, nobody in a way. No, uh, you're I'm everybody. Just, uh, you're all over the world. So uh, this is wonderful. Your wines um, are everywhere, where people, in every good wine store where people can find them. And, and fantastic yeah. restaurants. Yeah, it's it's been a long effort. Obviously, started by my father in the in the well, I guess late seventies. Um, because during the time, you know, the the civil war started from seventy five, and so whereas we were selling most of our wines um, in Lebanon in seventy five, you know, within a few years we could not sell anything anymore. So we right. we started looking uh, outside. Mm-hmm. And so my father, uh, you know, t- t- took his uh, his wines and just went around the world to try to 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 explain and and, and sell and to introduce them to people. Uh, and so it's been growing and growing since then. Um, up to actually, when the war finished in 1991, the civil war, we were selling 100% outside of Lebanon. And then now it's 80-20 roughly. Right. Um, but what it meant was that we he spent a lot of time traveling, introducing the wines, and then we've I, you know we've been continuing that. I've been continuing that. My cousin as well. My brother also contributes uh, more at the winery, but he also does uh, some uh, events outside. So it's a question of just uh, you know taking uh, the wines, introducing them, explaining them, explaining why we do the things we do, um, the, the philosophy we have, um, and then uh, and then tasting through older vintages and younger vintages just to see really how they evolve because that's sure. what makes our wines interesting. Of course, it's always about putting the product in people's hands, right? So I had heard these stories and I don't know if they were true that when there were troubles in Lebanon, there were caves in the side of the mountains where the wine was hidden. Is that a true story or not? Well, our, our winery is built over an old uh, Lebanese traditional house mm-hmm. uh, with arches, beautiful arches, which is the barrel room where we have all of our barrels. Yep. Yeah, just recently renovated. I mean, it took four years to renovate the whole thing. We're not completely done, but we're finally uh, almost there. Okay. Um, and uh, then the winery was built around that. Um, and then, so uh, so we're talking late 50s, early 60s. And so the the, the cellars were dug around that house. Okay. And the basically the walls are actually the rock. Oh, wow. Once we dug, we didn't actually, my father decided at the time to, to keep the humidity, not to, um, to put on walls uh, on the sides. Yeah. Yeah. So when you walk in, you just have, you know, uh, rocks and water uh, dripping down on the sides. Uh, yeah. It adds humidity. It adds. It's fantastic for, for Halloween for kids. If they right. really are allowed to go into the cellar, then uh, it's full of uh, <clears throat> cobwebs and, uh, right. and, and a few spiders that protect, you know, uh, from insects and things like that. Yeah, for sure. we, we, that's, uh, that's our approach to do things uh you know the natural way rather than with any sure. uh, chemicals Absolutely. um so it's a bit spooky but it's a nice it's a it's a nice place to to be in well i will look forward to coming to visit it when i come to see you and so yes, yes. I, I ask all of my guests this what do you love what do i love mm-hmm. in terms of loving in general in general i like taste i like taste in general i'm curious about taste Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's food or wine uh, or other things. Um, so for me, it's, uh, uh, I love, you know, uh, you realize how taste is important the day you you uh, can't taste. Mm-hmm. 
um, either through COVID or because uh, you know, you're sick mm -hmm. or you're sick or you have something. I actually was sick, uh, I'm still recovering from that. And um, my taste buds were all over the place. And I remember last week, everything I tasted was very, very salty. Um, and you realize uh, it's it's when you don't have that uh, ability to taste and to enjoy pleasures of you know uh, sensory pleasures that you um, you you miss it. Uh, and so for me, that's mm -hmm. that's one of the most probably uh, entertaining uh, okay. uh, things about life is is taste. And, and I think taste and has a little bit to do with to your eat. sense too, with smell, because. It, you you can't taste anything yes. without being able to smell it. Because when mm. I had COVID, I couldn't smell for three months, and I was very upset. I could taste things, but I couldn't smell them. And it's that whole experience of your palate and your nose at the same time. Yes, so. yes, yes. I think in taste, uh, and yeah, I I say taste. That's probably general. Uh, that also includes the nose, because I think eighty five percent of what you taste actually comes through the nose as well. Um, and um, and with our wines, in particular, our whites, whenever they get very old, um, they develop so complex aromas and so mesmerizing aromas mm -hmm. that I actually don't drink them. Uh, oh. I just smell. I just the smell them. Savor the smell. Because, <laughs> yeah, because the the nose is just so uh, intriguing and then so different that you are, you know, you you yeah, you literally mesmerized and then you're just trying to figure out what it is and then when you think you figured out what it is uh, that you're smelling uh, you know the minds have changed and then you no longer s smell what you thought you were smelling and then you, it's moved on to something else and so uh, that experience on you know on just on the nose is uh, it's such a journey that uh, for me that that's that's what you know uh, sometimes you have this uh, meditative meditative state that you can reach yeah. with the, uh, uh, with the wine where it just you know you feel more in tune with the things around you um and it's you know it can happen not that many times it's it's an epiphany for some people sometimes when they get this wow bottle where they discover that this is how they got to understand wine um and when you get that that's an amazing experience and so uh yeah and that's all a sense sensory experience whether it's taste yeah. nose it's so memorable too and so um, I'm going to ask you, do you have a song for us? I don't think I told you this in advance. A song? Yes. <laughs> I, everyone gets a to song. pick a song. Uh, okay. Uh, Abba, Mamma Mia. Oh, I love it. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. So thank well, you very fun. much, Mark. For, so where can people find your, they can find you on Instagram? Uh, they can find me on Instagram uh, and also Chateau Mizar. So either Chateau Mark Mizar. or Shar. And there is a website, me. I presume it's ChateauMizar.com or something like that. Yes, it's ChateauMizar.com. Very yes. good. Thank you so much for having me. And go out and drink some Chateau Mizar with your Christmas dinner. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very so much, much, Melanie. It was a Have pleasure. a wonderful day. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. Yes, soon. Okay. <laughs>